What's up, guys? Welcome back to Muscle Minds with Scott Stevenson. I'm Scott McNally. All of our programming is brought to you by True Nutrition. You can use our awesome code, advices, high-quality performance uh, sports supplements, health supplements. And if you use our code, you'll let Dante know to continue supporting our programming. You know, True Nutrition is like the OG of, like... Like true, like real, like it's a great name, obviously, but like real, like they're this OG of supplements as far as bodybuilding supplements, not as far as I'm con- concerned. Absolutely. Like Dante started that out like like people are getting ripped off by the package and all that kind of shit. Like that, that the way they advertise, it's the real deal. I mean, I was there when it happened. Yeah. I remember when they, you know, they were true protein and then they became true nutrition, but it was all like there was one other company out that like would sell you like bags of protein and literally giant like 50 pound bags. Yeah. And Bodybuilders just wanted like big, like massive bulk deals on the stuff that they knew they were going to use in bulk. Sure, it's like we can do this. Yeah, beats everyone's prices. Got certificate of analysis. Still, he's still there doing that same shit. Still kicking ass. They don't. I mean, they advertise here, but they don't have to advertise like, like really at all. It's just the customers no. just advertise for him. It's like a grassroots. It really is grassroots. Deal, yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. Kind of cool. I think everybody who knows about True Nutrition knows about it from somebody that they really believe in in bodybuilding yeah. you know like where do you hear about yeah. it shelby you know somebody somebody like right. that skip people who you trust I, and i think that that's a great way to do it plus i mean not to make it a marketing thing but because of that that's part of the reason that they're able to save money and pass that on to us by giving us good prices because otherwise they'd have to pay athletes to you know to say right. hey i take this when you know the way the system works yeah. Well, I mean, I know just having known Dante that there have been people that, um, like, cause he's just supported so many athletes, just sent them stuff, you know, yeah. Oh, yeah. Over years. And there have been many people who would like, they get their sponsors supplements and then they would just like, you know, give them away or sell them or whatever. And then they would use the stuff that Dante sent them or just pay for Dante stuff Yeah. for true nutrition stuff. And that, and Dante would, you know, he may have mentioned that before, like just generically the way I did without naming any names. But that that that's, that went on and has gone on. It probably does still go on to some degree because, you know, their stuff is just it's real basic. It's real simple. It's just phenomenal. Like you just, you know, you don't, you know, how long they've been around now. God damn. It's Pardon over. French, but it's over a decade. Oh, easily. Yeah. I'm trying to think. I'm thinking back to when True Nutrition I think I think I wrote I wrote some supplement reviews, some of which may be even still on their site if they got transferred over for True Protein in like 2007 or something like okay, that. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's like you know 13, almost 14 years. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, they really are. It's, I was just it just caught me when you said that because I'm so used to them being around, but they're they stood stood the test of time. How many other supplement companies have been around that long? That's some a good of the point real too. big ones. But none like there's there might be one other one that I don't buy from, but they kind of stand alone as a unique like there's like all the other big kind of big box style, yeah. big you know name brand. And some of those are like Labrada has a phenomenal reputation. They do great stuff. There's some other big ones that have been around, and then there's sort of True Nutrition, which still is sort of the underground mm-hmm. but highly successful. It's like this pillar. It's just as tall, mm-hmm. but no one knows about it because everyone's watching the other ones. So anyway, yeah, it's good stuff, man. I really. That's all I pretty much use so, for the most part. We've got a couple of topics today. Uh, the first thing is something I, I had been thinking about. I've mentioned it on a couple other programs. I've been waiting to talk to you about this, Scott. 
And you have a, a second topic. I don't know exactly where we're going with it, but you said it ties in. For starting, though, we, we were going to talk about the central nervous system because this ties into, to, to me at least, intensity. I think back to what intensity meant to me when I was a kid listening to ACDC in my parents' basement, lifting the Sears weight set. And, man, I was grinding out those reps as far as I could tell, you know. Like, I was given everything I had. But it's changed over time. And my ability, and I've noticed it especially this year, my ability to really grind through difficult reps has grown. It's changed. My definition of what a hard rep is or a hard set is has Mm -hmm. changed. And I can't help but feel like I've trained my central nervous system but that's just the thoughts that are floating around my head. I know if I brought it to you, you would have some stuff that would that would make these thoughts a little more concrete. Yeah. So it's we we sort of it's funny. There, so there's a there's a, a study from what was the year was a sixty three. Um, the original study where people talk about the primary uh, um, driver of muscle strength gains from resistance training comes from the central nervous system was done by Mortani and DeBreeze. It's like this classic study. And they looked at um, strength gains versus EMG over the course of about an eight-week study. And you found that the EMG increased in parallel with strength and that when you're not really seeing any detectable increase in muscle size in those first, although things are initiated like right off the bat, we know this now with more up-to-date measurements, you can see like just one exercise spot will start to shift the myosin isoforms you see in muscle, and you'll start to initiate the growth process. Um, muscle protein turnover turns on after just one, one, one bout. But the gains that you get, take a beginner. So this is just one aspect of training the central nervous system. It's just, it's obvious that it's important, and it, that it goes on when you're training. Is take a beginner who increases their strength by 60% on average, whatever over the first two months of lifting. They go from you know, 95 on the bar on an incline press or a bench press, and now they're doing 135 two months later. It's totally possible. Sure. Um, and then, or even consider that per- person who, you know, starts off weighing, let's say someone makes really good gains. They start off weighing 150. They're sort of weak as a cat. They're benching 95 pounds. And then they go to, um, they get to two and a quarter. So let's say they put on, you know, a good 70 pounds of muscle. And they're and they get really strong, and they're benching 405. So that's a fourfold increase in strength, and it's not a fourfold increase in muscle mass. Hmm. If you're the hundred and the reference man, um, I believe reference like standard like 170 kilogram man. So that's 154 pound guy. Like in the scientific literature, has like 31. So like less than se- a little bit around 70 pounds of muscle mass okay so it's a doubling of muscle mass to get to 225 let's say and a quadrupling of strength the nervous system obviously had something to say something to do with that it's not all new muscle mass so there's obviously that you train the nervous system we see this too when you look at various ways you'd interpret emgs in terms of um, what's going on in terms of fiber recruitment? Um, you can get improvements of muscle endurance as well, just by because you're learning how to do this, and that's just like looking at it from the perspective of like what signal is coming down the motor neurons into the muscle, and that obviously has to do with your brain. So we can kind of I'm going to just for the sake of like what we're talking about now for people listening, like you got your brain, 
and you've got like the motor programs that you develop. So let's say you've never juggled before. Mm -hmm. You want to learn how to juggle. I did this when I was a kid. It was like one year when I was like eight or something like that. I'm going to figure out how to juggle. It was on New Year's Eve today. I want to be able to juggle next year. Mm. And I, I learned how to juggle. I just kept on for like the whole day I dropped shit, you know, and eventually I learned I could juggle. And I learned to juggle in one day. I just taught myself by huh. just keeping on trying. I remember doing this like the weird shit I used to do when I was a kid. But I had developed the motor program through practice and practice and practice. So that's what happens with – that's why Olympic lifters – um, they can get away with this for other reasons, but the Olympic lifters will do those three Olympic lifts. And a lot of the, Olymp the Olympic lifts are a power clean and a snatch. Mm -hmm. Those are mainly concentric movements and they drop the bar yeah. intentionally because those lowering movements cause muscle soreness. They want to avoid the inroads into muscle recovery. They don't want to make the, make the muscle sore. They want to train the nervous system huh. and you're getting plenty of loading with those heavy loads, you know, doubles and triples that they're doing. And that will provoke muscle growth. And a lot of those folks already have a tendency to grow muscle easily. That's why they're at the top of the sport and doing that sport. But they want to practice that, those Olympic lift techniques with the heavy loads as much as they possibly can. Because that's the central nervous system. And they actually, they've, they've, there's actually been research been done. Um, I think this was Paratesh's stuff where they've, they've you know, documented that um, strength gains in an elite level, like world-class Olympic lifters, um, that are substantial, like literally, you know, five, 10% without changing weight classes. Hmm. And that's all tech. That's all going to be all technique based. Hmm. So yeah. that can be done. So your nervous system is there to, to basically, um, it, it is the largest part of strength gains in the gym in most every situation. I mean, take your average, you know, person who goes from beginner to all the muscle they put on of 20 pounds of muscle, mm -hmm. they might double their strength over the course of doing that, but they didn't double their muscle mass. Yeah. So you definitely train the central nervous system, without <laughs> a doubt. So then the other side of that, like, so that's just sort of training those motor programs, but then you also, there's also the whole other aspects of the black box, the psychological aspects that you're talking about, about learning how to grind and learning how to take yourself to places where you haven't previously been. Mm -hmm. And some of that are things like disinhibition being a big one. Mm. So there's a paper, I wrote an article for um, Elite FTS. I'm trying to think what the name of the paper is. Uh, but it's, a, it's, or the name of the article is, the paper that I talk about in there, at least it's a large part of the, of the, the article is by Kai and Steinhaus from like 67. I may have talked about this here. It's a, it's a study where it's a paper of something like um, factors modifying the expression of human strength. And they did this shit before uh, human subjects committees were what they are now. They couldn't get away with this. They wouldn't be able to do this now nowadays. They'd never get approved. They took uh, volunteers, and, uh, and there was one, at least one person who was highly trained. Like they said, they, I think they called him a, a weight trainer or something like that. He was a, he was a world-class strength athlete of some sort. And... They had them just do an isometric uh, arm curl, basically, elbow flexion, and they measured a baseline, sort of familiarized them to it, and then they wanted to see what things they could do to make them stronger. So one of the things they did was they got them drunk, mm. and they disinhibited. Like, you know, people say it loosens the inhibitions. Well, they pulled harder. So they went from this, you know, probably pretty sterile you know, here we are in the lab, and the guys with the lab coats and the pocket protectors, you know, and they're writing things down. It's like, okay, push as hard as you can, or pull as hard as you can. It's like, okay, good. And then they got them drunk, 
And then they went started going to town, right? Yeah, I bet. They they gave them amphetamines. While they're drunk or different different times? There was a different trial. I don't think they I don't think they did any combos. Yeah. <laughs> that would have been interesting. Yeah, who knows? The amphetamines did the same. Huh, okay. Of course. Yeah. They um they got a starter pistol and scared the bejesus out of them by shooting off this gun right next to their ear hmm. while they were pulling and of course they pulled harder. Yeah. They screamed at them. So just like ah like in which of course the same thing is going to happen when you encourage someone you're screaming at someone in the gym. Hmm. So if for instance and this is a kind of an aside in a research situation if you have uh, you have you'd have to control the amount of encouragement that you give your um, subjects. Either you come in and you have the same person who does his or her best job to encourage you the same way each time or you don't do any encouragement pretty much. Which just sucks because it's totally sterile and that's not any fun at all. But that makes a huge difference. It was demonstrated in this study. Um, so those are all things up in the brain that are involved with disinhibition. At least that's how they interpret it, removing those inhibitions. And the, one of the most powerful effects they found was from hypnosis. Oh, they yeah. They hypnotized everyone. And this, is, this was published in the Journal of Applied Physiology. Okay. Which is a very well known, it's been around for forever. It's a well known, high impact factor journal. Like, no one's going to, you get published in JAP, it's like, hey, bow down to you, man. Like, you got into that's with the big boys. You're playing big time there in J, Journal of Applied Physiology. And of course, this is a while ago, but still, in their methods section, to document the effectiveness of the hypnosis that they did, the hypnotist took from the subject pool the person who he deemed to be the least amenable to hypnosis and that happened to be this this uh um strength athlete who was just like ah, whatever like bullshit you know he's calling he's calling you can imagine probably like you know you can't change my strength you can't hypnotize me he was like it's a world-class athlete so he's got that maybe aggressive demeanor like like fuck you you ain't changing me mm -hmm. well they put him under hypnosis this is in the method section and i have the quote in my article and i've i may even read this on other podcasts and in the method section, they describe the procedure the hypnotist did to demonstrate the effect of hypnosis. He told that subject, while he's under hypnosis, that I will be touching a hot poker to your hand just briefly. Here we go. I'm going to do that. And when he touched the guy's hand with a ballpoint pen, no hot poker, nothing damaging to the tissue, he pulled his hand away like he'd been burnt. Hmm. And a blister formed. That's the weird part. I don't get. I remember you telling this telling uh, this to us before. A blister formed. The guy touched a ballpoint pen to his hand. He, he believed, believed it. that it was hot, and therefore it burnt him. It's crazy. It's, it's, it's in there, you know. It's in there. But like, it's in so. it. This is in like a legit journal. This is not. It's in. It's, that's, that's not the National Enquirer. Not as legit as you get in the biological okay. sciences. Yeah, it's like. You know, JEP's big time. They That's do crazy. like heavy duty biology based stuff. In this case, it was a, you know, psychobiological type of thing. That's insane. So, so that's the thing. Like, you go and like people say, like, you know, imagine like Kai Green's been, there was an interview with him where he's talking about tapping into rage. Yeah. And, you know, I talk about, you know, vi visualization. You know, I've got an article, another article on Lead FDS about visualization um, being very, very effective. And these are all these are all things that are going on in your central nervous system, in your brain, in your mind, 
to allow you to improve performance. You can actually train people where they just visualize performing an exercise mm. and get strength gains on order of the same ones that you would get if they actually did the exercises. Yeah. Which makes sense. Like over the course of many weeks, like a 10 week training period on like group A just imagines themselves doing bicep curls and, and group B actually does bicep curls. Well, you don't get that much muscle growth. Like if you get like a 5%, like you might get like 10% increase in muscle cross sectional area, let's say over eight or 10 weeks. It's pretty good growth. Um, 5% is what I got in one of my studies on average. Okay. I think five versus seven percent, five or seven percent is training a quad. And that was with electrical stimulation, which even this was in trained people, but 10% is pretty good. So, but you can get a 30, 40% increase in strength or hmm. weight that you can use for X number of reps in that period of time. So most of that strength comes from the motor program. And that motor program can run by visualizing and imagining um, actually doing what it is that you're going to be tested on, in this case, in the scientific study. So you can practice those things virtually in your mind's eye and create a, tre a tremendous um, strength improvement, it training effect. It makes me think about, in, in a, you know, for anybody who's been listening to bodybuilding podcasts, the people who are always serious in the gym, they're the ones that they come, the guys who are making the great progress, they talk about like, oh, you got to put your phone away. You got to focus. Don't talk be to people. You got to get in there and have purpose. And we all have our own styles to, as to how we want to train. Mm -hmm. But all this leads me to like to that, I guess, is that, you know, I mean, I'm not saying you need to be hypnotized to go into the gym, but I mean, I think there is something to be said about visualization. You know, especially when you're doing progressive overload and thinking to yourself, like, okay, I'm going to get that 150 pound dumbbell for 12 reps today. It's going to happen. Being able to see that in your mm -hmm. head, carry it out in your head before you actually even touch the weight. The, the research suggests, and there's a couple from, I'm, I'm recalling it's been some time since I looked into this specifically, but there's a, a couple different um, paradigms that have been tested, but they share the commonality in that you want to re, um, rehearse all the thing, everything you can you can come up with in the sen sensorily during the actual visualization procedure. So, if you're if, let's say it's a squat and you're going for a PR with you know 405 pounds and you want to get 12 reps, so you would literally get into there and you would you would maybe even smell the chalk if the chalk is something you smell, hmm. and you would imagine. You know, the, the knurling on the bar and the way the bar fits down in your back and maybe it tears at your skin a little bit if that's, you know, if that's how you're what happens when you do that. What it feels like when you unrack that and you have total control of the bar and the bar is your bitch as opposed to, oh, fuck, this is a heavy bar. Yeah. Like all the and, and what you see, like like what you see, like if there's a mirror in front of you, you see yourself squatting down or maybe you don't see anything or maybe you just see a blur. Some people just do a blur. You know, that happens to them. They just. They unfocus, but everything you feel, see, you know, the sensation in your muscles, even and for me, this is can be an important one. Like sometimes there can be a, a sort of a mental a potential for a mental breaking point during a set hmm. where you get to the end of the set and you're and you like all of a sudden think, OK, three left. Mm -hmm. And when, when when that happens, you can create a self-fulfilling prophecy. And it's like, okay, well, I'm just going to get three, and this will be done. And that can be a very smart way to train. I'm not saying don't do that. If you know, if you think if three is all you got, then three is all you got. But then there's also those times when 
and I, I actually employ this sometimes a lot with myself, is I will set a number beyond which is probably reasonable. And imagine that. So I like, hmm. I, I can like set. Okay, so I'll say, I'll say, I'm getting fucking fifteen with this son of a bitch. Okay, yeah. You know, and more most, most I ever got was ten. So I start off that set, and sometimes that's backfired on me because I start, I start going so rapidly and trying uh, to bang out the reps that I my form fails. Mm-hmm. But but I so now I know I have to visualize that, and I visualize myself going through like that eighth rep when it looks like he's got like one left, and I'm like, no motherfucker, this is when the shit starts. Yeah. And you know with that feeling, like when you have that mojo working where you're like, like every rep is going to be my biatch here, <laughs> rep by rep, contraction by contraction, and you go past what you would have otherwise because you you got the mojo working. There's just – that's happening. If you've seen that once, you've just done it, and it's right there in your mind in all the ways you can imagine. And this is kind of the important part is that it's not like you just say it. You have to see it and experience it as much as you can. Hmm. And like that – you know that thought like – Oh fuck, my legs hurt like shit. <laughs> like, you don't want that thought. You want that thought of like, this is what I want my legs to feel like. Yeah. I'm yeah. gonna drive past this shit. So you rehearse all those thoughts. And you ever have like and this is just something I just sort of thought of. You ever have a workout where you maybe start off you're a little tired and you're getting things going, but you start doing pretty well. Mm-hmm, absolutely. People are sick all the time. You know, they go in feeling like shit and they have a great workout. Mm-hmm. And you get to the, you get like halfway through your workout and all of a sudden you just feel completely revitalized and you feel like everything, like, as opposed to like, you're starting to slow down as the workout progresses, you're actually like picking up speed and it's cause you've had multiple wins, so to speak during that workout. It's the way I sort of see it. Yeah. You've been kicking ass. You've had all these sets that you just like barreled through and now you, you've got, you've actually experienced that driving through those reps where. Like this shit's getting hard and really pushing to a true failure point. You can do that and bypass the need to having had done some previous sets where you experienced that by visualizing all that in the first place. Hmm. And that's and so that is I mean visualization is is gigantic and you know there's there are stories of you know like skilled athletes like basketball players and um, you know people who you know um, baseball pitchers and people of that of that ilk who have a very um, skill-oriented um, motor program detailed task mm-hmm. as part of their activity, their sport, and they can practice those things in their mind, but you have to practice well, too. You can't just practice sloppy. So same thing goes for the visualization. So there's that. Um, so the important point here, like there's, there's a, this sort of black box, that's the term that guy from back in my graduate school days in Texas, Eddie Coyle was uh, an exercise, he still is an exercise physiologist, did a lot of work for Gatorade, done some phenomenal stuff like examining the physiological limitations to endurance cycling. Hmm. And he, he like over the course of like 12 or 15 years, he created this really kind of cool line of research where he demonstrated like the glycogen becomes limiting, you know, when people bonk, he sort of demonstrated that and how you can, you know, supplant that perhaps with drinking Gatorade and blah, blah, blah. And but he used to just talk about and people would every once in a while ask like so what about the brain like what about effort levels and he's like oh, we don't worry about the black box, and he he would say that like facetiously he knows there's a lot of shit going on there but he's like we just for the course of this for the purpose of this class we have to focus here hmm. and recognize that these are some limitations but there's a guy named Tim Noakes N O A K E S people want to look up look him up I think I cite him in my Beyond Bodybuilding Coach book. Um, and he talks about the central governor theory. And he may have coined that term. I'm not sure. 
But so the central nervous system is the governor to performance. Just like you can, like you know, on like semis on the highway, they put a governor on their accelerator, on their, on their throttle, so that they can't exceed the speed limit, and drive right. too fast. Yeah. So there's this governor theory, and he's got in the course of like he's got a, at least one, maybe two, another, probably various versions now of a review of the literature demonstrating the ways in which you see that the brain seems to be the penultimate limiter to performance, at least at the highest levels. And hypnosis is part of that. The effect of drugs, some of the things we talked about in that early study, um, expectancies and what competition can elicit in people. So, mm. like you can find that like, you can you can you when you put like um, at least in the lab, you put like competitive cyclists on a uh, a cyclergometer and have them race do like a standard time trial race. And if they they will try to pace, and they're really good at pacing themselves. They know they've been used to like. This is the pace I can maintain. This is my lactate threshold. I go too fast, and then I will end up having to slow down. And it's so they optimize their race pace. Huh. But if you put them against a simulator who's outpacing them a little bit, like someone <laughs> to compete against, they will they will go faster. Uh, I bet, yeah. And that and that's like why I say like the best training partner is someone who's going to make you their bitch every day. <laughs> I'm using the word bitch a lot today. For yeah, reason. you are. What's up with that? <laughs> I don't know. Bitch. <laughs> 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 who's, your, who's your bitch? Who's your biatch? Anyway, so that, that just slipped out, man. I don't know what's going it was on. good. I must have a tumor yeah. somewhere. I don't know, bitch. Probably several. <laughs> There's a sound bite for you. Yeah. But they will they will race faster when you have competition. So, and everyone has seen that. How many times have you heard like you think you train hard and then you go? There's always someone else who trains harder. Yeah. And you go try to keep up with them, and you and you find a new level, and you're like, holy shit, I had no idea I could do that. Yeah, um, I think that's Uwe been. Abiyad had a video that he he like kind of co-produced with the guy that is like a competitive eater, I think, and I just sort of listened to part of it. And the guys, the guys very entertaining, he's bright, and so he went, and he trained with Fuad, and then he had like a like a five guys hamburger eat off thing afterwards. Okay. But you know, the guy went and they trained legs, and they did what you know a, one of Fuad's standard training sessions which is much higher volume this guy's used to and the thing and he's trained the guy trains pretty hard like okay he's, like he's not he didn't just start yesterday but he's like he's like he never thought he could do some of those things. he's never gone that far at all in his life yeah um and that's just like a recent example i literally heard you know like 12 hours ago and listening to youtube when i was walking the dogs i think i think that's so, one of the things people are running into with all the quarantine stuff when they've talked about being demotivated training from home not only it's not just having training partners oh, yeah. but like having the other people when we talk about like the energy of a gym i think that that's part of that you know just having other people absolutely. around you that are pushing themselves absolutely yeah so i mean there's, there's so much to this there's so much that's going on in our subconscious like one of my one of my favorite placebo studies i've talked about the the dianabol study here the steroid studies you know where people and like there's there's other examples, another kind of cool one from cycling, which popped into my head because I just was mentioning cycling is they could give people um, they tell them that they're getting different doses of caffeine mm. under different conditions, all of which are placebos huh. and their and their performance is improved in a graded fashion depending on the size of the dose they were told they could, were given. I'll be damned. So when they're given the like, here comes your big dose of caffeine, you should kick ass today and like they kick ass that day and like. Today you don't get any caffeine, so good luck. Hope you make it through. Uh -huh. You know, yeah. And they fucking drag ass. 
Yeah. Yeah. I think pre-workout is like that for a lot of people too. You know, that it's, I think that when, well, you know, when you started training or even when I started training, pre-workout wasn't even an an invention yet, really. I mean, they had ultimate orange, um, ultimate orange. Yeah, they did have that, but it didn't catch on the way that it has nowadays. I know people who bought a gym membership and bought a tub of pre-workout. They've only known to train with that. It is, Mm -hmm. there is a mental thing of like, I got to have at least something. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's funny. Like there have been times, um, this happened, like it doesn't happen very often, but like it's happened usually when I'm dieting down Mm -hmm. and I'm taking my fat burners, which basically are end up being pre-workouts. Yeah. I get to like running around and like sometimes, like sometimes I'm on a motorcycle now, this wasn't a problem in the past when it's happened, but and I just forget to take like one of my doses in the in the middle of the day. I get out. And I just like I usually have like like all those things in triplicate. I have a little box in my cooler I carry with me. Blah blah. But I just forgot. And then mm-hmm. I go to the gym in the afternoon, and I'm then I start going through my checklist of like have I done anything to get ready. I'm like, oh shit, I forgot my pre workout. Yeah. But I don't. I can't even tell. It doesn't. I don't even. It doesn't even register with me. It's not like, oh god, I can't train. I'm like, oh, I just kind of forgot that. It's like. I forgot to wash these socks, but it doesn't fucking matter because I'm going to train hard anyway. Yeah. So I think some people they connect they connect the two things, and and then that can become a limitation. Mm-hmm. Then they then they've sort of you know an operant conditioning kind of way leash themselves to training with um, a pre workout because they want to feel that way. It gives them confidence and it gives them a sense that they're in the right mindset, the right state of central nervous system stimulation in order to to train. The way they've been training, it's it's state depending learn. I'm using this in a very armchair kind of way, but it's state dependent learning. <laughs> like I only know how to train if I'm on pre workout. I don't sure. know how to train otherwise. Sure. You know. Yeah, uh, I think we goes, we do that a lot. Ahead. We do that a lot. I think I, I've I've found when I've built a ritual around training, like all of us who've lifted for a long time before, you know it, it's like, okay, I have to take my pre-workout and then I take the IGF and then I take the, the insulin or whatever it is. You've got this right. whole cocktail of things, yeah. 30 minutes, 15 minutes as I'm walking in the door, like you have yeah. this whole list of things. It can become overwhelming. I like that idea of stripping it back though and, and recognizing you know, that, that those are things that you could become dependent on and that you don't, I don't know, man, I keep going back it, it, this. I'm going to tie this into the blister. I don't know if I, be, I don't know if I, I have a hard time wrapping my head around believing that somebody could believe that they would get a blister from the ballpoint pen and, and actually get it. But I want to believe mm-hmm. like, I want to believe yeah. that's possible because if it is, it just tells me how strong the mind is and how much I can prepare for a workout mm-hmm. or anything. It's, it's interesting because there's, there's all sorts of accounts and, you know, how truthful they are, I don't know, of, you know, people healing themselves with, with their minds. Yeah. Um, you know, all the thoughts about, you know, so-and-so with cancer and people prayed for them and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, who knows? But I know that I know that there are there are accounts that seem like they're a little more reasonable of like like mothers who were in car wrecks and they had to lift like a you know eight hundred pound tree off their car to save their child and they did it somehow. Yeah. Which you know would be like how the hell could that possibly happen? So there's some incredible feats. Um, there's some like there are, there are actually heart rate um, measurements of full grown adult firefighters. Where their heart, like they're on top of a burning building, you know, life defi- a death defying type of um, experience, and their heart rate's going 220 beats per minute. 
Hmm. That so that's 220 is supposed you're, you're the most standard used. It has a pretty wide standard deviation, but the most standardly used estimate of your max heart rate is 220 minus your age. So if you're 30, your max heart rate should be 190. Hmm. So if your heart rate is 220, that's like three standard deviations above, which is possible, but that's just a ridiculous heart rate. Yeah. And there's the the breath hold diving. Yeah. Which you know people can do. Which last I there seems to be last I looked into this, no one's been able to completely physiologically explain how it is that that can be done unless a person's metabolism is slowed in some way, shape, hmm. or form. Could you consider the rate of oxygen use just at rest plus the oxygen use to perform the exercise to do the diving? And that's a lot of that's just going down, you know, so not like actively swimming. And the amount of time, it's like there, act, there should be no oxygen left yeah. for survival unless metabolism has slowed. Huh. And so I, I'll have to look into that again. Like I, that may be one of my little rabbit holes to follow down the next few days but like that's sort of like one of those how do we we don't have a physiological explanation for this so you you mentioned something and it, it it kind of ties into some of the further thought i've had about this so you know if i'm able to grind through reps and endure and handle more now than i could in the past and you know you mentioned like the lady who picks up the the tree off the car or whatever. Those I mean, anecdotal reports. Those you know. those things happen. You know, you you hear somebody lifting a car off of their kid or whatever. Those things do happen. But those things, like those people who do those things, they aren't doing that every day. We're uh, right. in, in fitness and bodybuilding. We're trying to do that at least every week. You know. Well, check this because there's another another placebo experiment that, and I can find the reference that they've done this. They've done experiments where they used a topical uh, anesthetic, like a lidocaine, and exposed people repeatedly to, I think it was an ice bath, to, which where you put your arm in an ice bath, and that's like a, that's very, very painful, and it's a total perturbation of your autonomic nervous system. Very, very stressful. And then they can test various other things, and you can't keep your hand in there very long. Yeah, it's a pain tolerance test. You know, women tend to do better at that than men, actually. They can keep their arms submerged longer. Um, but there's all sorts of cool things too. Like there's uh, there's also a study. Normally, what we have is vasoconstriction in that case. You know, you've, that's why why we have people have frostbite. And the idea there is the body's conserving the blood to stay in the core of the body, keep the core alive, and the core includes your brain. Mm. So if your if your brain dead, the rest of you doesn't matter. But if you lose an arm, it's better to lose an arm and still have a brain than to lose a brain and not, and have functioning arms for the donor. I guess. Um, so. Normally you have vasoconstriction, but there's there's there are studies of New England um, uh, uh, wharf workers, like fishermen, who are constantly putting their hands in ice cold water, and they can do that, and they actually have a vasodilatory response. Hmm. Their system has learned to reverse the natural um, flow of blood, which normally is reduced. To increase flow there, so that their hands can stay warm while they're dipping in this ice cold water and pulling the fish, you know, out of the buckets or what have you. So ice cold water. So you can reverse those things with constant. You can reverse the normal autonomic response. And of course, this is what yogis do. They can drop their heart rates down to like really, really low levels. Okay. Yeah. You know, um, with just their breath. And the thing I was going to say back to the arm and the uh, the uh, topical anesthetic is that they've done placebo studies where they they expose someone I think it was the cold water immersion exposed their arm to that arm gets really cold they experience that and then they and they put the, a lidocaine on there 
which numbs them, and then they give them various exposures to actually a true numbing experience from using a, the pharmaceutical topical that numbs their arm and makes it not hurt or not hurt as much. And then they give them a placebo. They say, okay, we're going to do another one with, you know, blah, blah, blah. And they put their arm in there and like, no, nope, it doesn't hurt at all. And it's like, okay, great. And there's nothing on there to, to numb their arm. Huh. They just think it's going to be numb because they've experienced that. And the, what they put on there looks and feels exactly, it smells exactly the same as what actually did. So they were previously exposed to that situation where the pain was gone. Yeah. So you, if you go, and this is where I think, call it self-hypnosis, call it, you know, learning to grind or what have you. If you repeatedly go in there and, I mean, one of my, one of my, I'll just a little personal um, thought here. Like one of my favorite songs, is a song by Anthrax called Safe Home. Okay. And the, the one of the themes in the song is like, this is my safe home is, is, is in the, in the gym. Mm. And if you can get that, create that experience in your head where, this place that I go to, which is just mind-bogglingly painful and full of maximal effort and potentially exhaustion, is a place that I create for myself. And this is my house, baby. This is where I fucking live. You can go there repeatedly. And each time you can go there, you can go a little bit deeper into the house and explore it a little bit more. And next thing you know, it's not like it's not like a haunted house where you're scared shitless. Am I going to, you know, what's going to happen? This is awful. Like, let me out of here. I can't wait till this set stops. Instead, it's like, now we're on my territory, baby. This is where I live hmm. at, in these last reps at the end of the set. And that's sort of an analogy. You, you may even say those things to yourself in your head. I, I do sometimes. You know, every once in a while I'll say, who's your fucking daddy? Like in the middle of the set, like, <laughs> you know, and that's fun as hell, right? You know, yeah, I've yeah. actually said that. Who's your daddy? Um, and that's because like, here we go, bitch. We're going in. We're going after it's time to it's time to go into my home. This is where I live just for these brief moments in time. And I've accumulated over years of experience, as you have. And you're starting to see now um, familiarity with that place psychologically. Where, the, where you have to disinhibit, where you have to pull back, where you have to be able to recognize that this pain and this effort is all part of what you are trying to evoke. Yeah. Like this is where you want to be. Yeah. This is not foreign territory that you need to escape from. This is your, your, um, your homeland, so to speak, that you want to go deeper into so you can keep on doing that. And that's, that's like learning to um, take charge of that central governor and disinhibit and you know, bring out things that you wouldn't otherwise be able to do. So you want, so you can imagine then, like that's part of this visualization experience is imagining what it's like in the home. So, but does it you stress you? The haunted house, and you're like, well, just oh, oh, just a sec, yeah. and you're like, oh shit, you know, I know what's in there. But if what if you stop and say, I've been here before, yeah, I know just what it's going to look like, and then you open the door, and then you go in, and it looks just as you just imagined it. Totally different experience. So. Yeah. What were you going to say? But does it stress you? Does it stress you more because you are digging deeper and deeper and deeper into, you know, this level of discomfort? Is that is that harder on your body over, you know, uh, repeatedly going further and further? Of, of course. Yeah. Like that's that's the point. Hmm. The stress is the stimulus in that context. There's distress and there's you stress. People kind of use those terms like. Like when you win the lottery and you're happy as shit, that's stressful, right? That's your sympathetic nervous system gets jacked up, and like, like that's a form of stress. It's a pleasurable one, huh? huh yeah. But it's also a kind of a stress. 
Um, and yeah, absolutely. When you in, when you do those two extra reps beyond the you know ten that you would have done otherwise, yeah, without a doubt. But those are the those physiologically are the are the are the they're the most effective reps, so to speak, which is a really nice term just to sort of conceptualize all this. So those are the ones that hopefully produce the stimulus that then evokes greater adaptation than what you currently were maintaining in training up until that point. Okay. So if you just kept on doing those 10 reps with that weight, you're not going to grow. But if you start adding a rep every week, then then you're going to have a unique stimulus that hopefully produces an adaptation which supports the ability to again produce a unique stimulus, meaning you add another rep, which as long as you eat and rest and recover enough, then you can have a greater adaptation so that the next time you could even get another rep and then like the whole system, you know, stimulus recovery, stimulus, eat, sleep, grow, eat, sleep, grow, eat, sleep, grow. Yeah. I guess I, I was thinking of like, um, you know, when I spoke to Chris Duffin and when I listened to him and Victoria talking, he was saying like, this is going to kill me. That was his yeah. thought was like that he, he felt like you can only do this so many times. You can only put like he was training with 900 pounds on his back. And he was like, every time I train, this is killing me is the way he felt about it. Yeah, there is. I mean, and that's extreme. Yeah. You know, we aren't. Yeah, yeah. I'm not squatting nine. <laughs> you know, you can only yeah, you can only get away with so much. You know, Ronnie Coleman is the you know quintessential example of someone who just he put everything into it. And now he sort of pays the paid the price. In um in Chinese medicine, they have a nice way of kind of conceptualizing this, and you see this in all sorts of forms. And you'll one of these we've talked about, and you'll relate to is you have you have the various energies of the organs and all the bits and pieces of Chinese medical theory, but you have your in your kidney is where your sort of root energy is, your kidney energy and especially your kidney essence. Yeah. Which is actually related to your ability to reproduce. Um, and it's something that you start off with, at least according to most texts, and I've always asked, it's always been like, can you replenish this or can you not? It's like you start with a given amount of this kidney essence, or jing is the name for the for the, the vital substance. And then as you age, it gets lower, less and less and less. Huh. Like having gray hair is a sign for, to one degree of, of less essence, right? Um, your bones are getting less, low back pain, which tends to happen, et cetera, et cetera. But there's, every time you go through something really stressful, stressful period in your life, um, actually the, the teeth are manifestations of the bone, which is fed by the kidneys energy in Chinese medicine. And someone who runs hard, who lives hard, are people who are meth heads. Yeah. And you see them, like, they age, like, Rapid. 15 years and six months. You know, you see the yeah. before and after. And their teeth fall out, too. And that's malnutrition. You can you explain that from in various other ways. But there's also, that's the Chinese medical way of conceptualizing this. Huh. So, obviously, and this is this fits in with the rate of living hypothesis, which is one idea that is sort of behind the thought that, you know, to some degree, like free radicals and um, which are producing greater extents, the higher metabolism and the higher metabolism, the shorter your, your actual lifespan suggests that the faster you live and the harder you live and the more you live, so to speak, the shorter your life's going to be. So you kind of have like a, 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 and there have been various philosophers who've had this sort of thought over the years. You've got sort of this quantifiable amount of life. Yeah. And you can better, you can burn out or you can fade away, so to speak, you know, um, like the guy from the Highlander. You remember that uh, the bad guy from the Highlander? I, yeah, it's kind yeah, of foggy now. Burn out than a fade away. Def Leppard. Yeah. Anyway, so there's something to say for that, and so yeah, you live really hard and fast, and those sorts of things are like, 
Because after he'd do one of those 900-pound squats, he'd Ooh. probably be fucked for like four or five days. Yeah, yeah. And then he'd yeah. do it again the next week training for 1,001, you know? Yeah, it's like right. It's a, it, the extreme, of course. But then I, I do ask myself, like, you know, even on an exercise, like an isolation movement, I'm thinking about hamstring curls, looking at my machine. I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm looking at it because it's right there, so I have a hard time not, like, I having, having the conversation this way. It's like, talking to me, motherfucker. <laughs> what, bitch? Yeah, I'm watching you. <laughs> so, uh, but but I, I have realized, like, I can grind through these reps, even when, even when it's not hardly moving, even when it stops, and I'm just giving everything I have, and I'm like, holding 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 and then eke out eke out eke out tiny 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 bit more like the reps that i'm doing on this at times it's like stuff that i know i couldn't have done years ago and then afterward i'm wondering like well what did that do to my recovery right now <laughs> you know and that, and that's the thing I, I think they're and this is why you know this is built into fortitude training those failure reps i limit those ah and you're, you're keying into like this is <laughs> you kind of said it for me there in okay a way. like you've heard me say this a million times maybe it's clicking for you differently but you limit those you do those to sort of test yourself and develop that capacity to some degree yeah plus that gives you those those, those are highly effective reps but you also pay the piper for them yeah because the inroads to recovery and this is purely like i've heard many people say this and i've been saying it for a long time um that you know you you can only get away john meadows has said it for a long time too like you have to use those intensification techniques where you have multiple failure points like a drop set or you know maybe if you're doing a cluster set where you have more than one failure point you get a superior stimulus you know in that in the two reps in reserve and one rep in reserve from those last couple effective reps but you also get depending on the person an exponentially greater inroad to recovery overall huh. so yeah you do three sets and st stop three sets short of failure no big deal but you do one set where it's where you end up like getting one of those grinder reps that is just absolutely mind-boggling and that might be the equivalent stimulus at least in terms of what your nervous system has been taxed um in doing so and everyone's balance is different there hmm. that's the thing you know yeah and that's like that's where the where the to some degree where it's one factor that determines how much volume someone can get away with training with yes yeah if they if they don't train like you do and like their failure point you know the reps and i was actually i have a post had all sorts of computer problems so i've been able to put up anything but um if you look at skeletal muscle as it uh as it fatigues so you can like take a, a muscle and just stimulate it so you take the nervous system completely out yeah and you just watch it's watch it's watch it's force production it will kind of decline in this sort of exponential way and you'll see it kind of decline so that's the basis of using velocity of movement as a way to dictate effort level during resistance exercise so people are starting to investigate this now so what you see as someone nears the end of a set if taken to failure is that bar speed slows yeah. On any movement they're using a bar, so you can use velocity, uh, um, bar speed is a sort of high tech, fancy, maybe overkill in many practical situations. But you can use that as a way to limit the inroads or limit the effort put into each set. So you know you stop all your sets when your bar speed slows to X percentage of the initial reps bar speed. That means you're getting X amount of fatigue because you're trying to go as you know at a faster pace, but you simply can't right. because the fatigue forces you. So that might stop you two or three reps shy. You could just stop two or three reps shy as well. 
But the thing that we know then is that when muscle fatigues, it doesn't like, it doesn't like, you know, force, 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 force. And it's like, also, boom, the forces just drop off like that. It's not like a light switch turning off. It fatigues when energy supply can't match the energy demand. And that is a slow, gradual process. It's a function in muscle of fiber type, the enzymes that are in those fibers, the mitochondrial content, the, the economy or efficiency, the myosin, which is a function of fiber type, depending how you test it, all those things. And so faster fiber types will, will were more fatigable and slower fiber types are less fatigable. Yeah. But you still see like this gradual decline of some sort. And if you're training with a nervous system that's driving the muscle to its maximal capacity, like E-STEM would and does, okay. you're going to see the same kind of fatigue curve. So you'll be rep, 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 rep. <laughs> and then maybe you try one more and you like move it a little bit and then you're done yeah that's and you can see that like most people stop about three reps shy of that and that's because they're because their nervous system their psychology their their central governor is not evoking it just just stops the set as a protective mechanism probably in most cases so huh. The idea in you know, that's put forth by Tim Noakes and the central governor is that even in almost all circumstances, even in high-level sport, there's still something left in the tank um, most of the time in almost all circumstances. Huh. And there's so, so there's something there. And most people, like, they're so far from a max effort and a best performance um, just because of that, the central governor. So there's – so back to where I kind of started, like, there's the – the motor programming aspect of it, like you could have someone who, let's say, is a um, a highly tr highly trained athlete in like a wrestler or you know like a like a, a intermediate distance runner, 400 meters, like some really hard shit that requires you really the, you have to know how to push and push through pain. So their central governor and their ability to disinhibit and drive is really pretty well advanced, but it's specific to their sport, so it's. The limitation there isn't isn't the central governor aspect. It's not their psychology. When they go in the weight room, it's because they've never done those lifts before. So you'll see they train, and like you've probably had clients, maybe like a, even a beginner client, and it's like, wow, they train really hard, you know. But they're wobbly and this sort of thing. So uh -huh. they their limitation there is probably still motor skill, mm. because they've got years of training and pushing and fighting through the pain. Like it's not a lack of effort in their case. Yeah. It's just they don't know how to do the exercises, and they'll learn that really quickly. So their effort level doesn't doesn't change. And then there are some people like who have both the motor skill issue, and then they have to learn how to train harder. And like in your case, you've got the motor skills down, and now you've shifted your training, so you're exposing yourself to more of those high effort like grinder reps. And now you're working on that central governor, and of course mm. that's going to require that because you're doing more of those really all-out reps that your volume is going to have to come down. Yeah, that's exactly where I've been. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so, so yeah, the central nervous system gets trained, yes, in various ways. Wow. I knew if I asked you this, Scott, that you would have a lot to say and you'd be able to expound upon it. So thank you. Yeah, yeah. It's just like it's really like this, this whole central governor thing is really fascinating because – it doesn't. It doesn't deny the fact that you know you can feel when the glycogen levels are low, and that contributes. Like that does is a limitation, but there's multiple limitations. Yeah. You know, to performance at a higher level that can all 
the, the limiting factor can be at so many different at so many different levels. And so it's a long time ago I did a um, a talk on causes of fatigue, and I think I maybe I wrote an article on this. I've I've written about it somewhere, but. So like literally you can like like a loci a locus of fatigue or loci of fatigue, like locations of fatigue. And it's like so there's the central governor, that's the brain. And and that can even be a function of like the neurotransmitters in there that are feeding um uh, or sort of the amino acids that are entering the blood, like tyrosine versus altryptophan, yeah. that are feeding um the catecholamine levels, the dopamine levels in the brain. Like there's there's that that's that's one that's one thought that um, the exposure to, to ty tryptophan versus tyrosine and the, the entry of amino acids in the brain can cause cause it be a cause of central fatigue in the brain. Yeah. So there's all these potential like neurotransmitter, potentially just psychological issues. Like, what if you have someone who, you know, who grew up with an overbearing father who forced them to exercise, and they've got psychological trauma. That and some of that psychological trauma, it actually creates epigenetic changes in uh, on the DNA of the neurons of the brain in, yeah. in areas that are responsive to trauma. And I've I just came across, I've discussed this with a friend of mine who's a therapist. So literally, the brain, the neurons in in those areas of the brain that were activated during traumatic experiences, now turn on genes differently and and react differently I bet. when we exposed to things because of these epigenetic changes. Epigenetics basically determine to what extent and with what likelihood and the ease with which genes are turned on or turned off in response to the stimuli that's exposed, that the cells are exposed to. So you got someone who was forced to exercise and they had an overbearing father who if they didn't win, you know, would say, you didn't win, so we're going to the weight room. You got to get stronger. They make them squat all night long or some crazy shit. Is on tight. Good mute. You got nice mute skills there. I got it. I, um, I've done it before a couple times. Yeah, not your first rodeo. So, so that person when they get in the gym, and, and now they like they're way like you know the daddy issues they think are kind of resolved, but they get in the gym and like well they want to squat because it feels good for their legs and it's like a saying thing and like now they start having like this these friggin' flashbacks like almost PTSD like things Ooh. of having to squat because you know they lost and they didn't get daddy's approval. Like where is that's happening? Like at an epigenetic level in the brain, huh. and then we can like like at, at the other end of the extreme, you could say, well, you know, I think this is this might be a function of you know the interaction at the T tubules and the sarcoplasmic reticulum in terms of calcium release, because calcium is the intracellular signaler for myosin actin interaction of the cross bridge cycle. So you know you, you've got you've got a limitation there in those cells in those fast switch fibers. Because huh. you can't, you, you're not in terms of calcium handling. So there's a guy named Bob Fitz who's written about all this stuff. So there's evidence that calcium handling is the is a locus of fatigue in certain fiber types. I believe in like rats, fiber, muscle fibers. Okay. So which is it? Is it the fact your your daddy was an asshole, or that you you have a bad ryanidine receptor, you know, somewhere in your fast twitch fibers? So there's all these different things from literally top to bottom. Huh. You know, the thing that could slow your your truck down could be a loose lug nut. <laughs> You know, or it could be like, you know, something on the in the throttle mechanism or anything or the fact that you're out of gas yeah. or your oil's low or all these different things. So we always think, well, it's the engine, you know, that must be it. But it could be a bad axle that's twisted, you know, a million different things in just a simple, relatively simple thing like an automobile. And our bodies are you know, infinitely more complex wow. in a certain way. So, yeah, the brain's a big part of it. And I think this is the one that. 
at the upper end of like performance and doing the stuff you're trying to do that I'm trying to do that a lot of listeners are trying to do and eke out gains after years of training when gains come pretty easily. A lot of it's a lot of it's here. Hmm. So I had um, a funny story related to like going to the gym with like the, you know, the badass mindset thing. So one of the things I'm in fact, you asked me about a New Year's resolution. I don't really have one, but there's one of the things I'm trying to do more of. Yeah. And that's just sort of speak my mind freely. OK. And be kind of authentic and just sort of say what, you know, be just truthful and honest and step away from the personas that I tend to wear in various mm-hmm. situations. I've been wearing them since I was a kid. And I was at the gym, and uh, uh, so there's there's two there's two people in the two two women in the gym. They're doing Olympic lifts, and one was having trouble with the straps. It's kind of comical. She never used them before. Oh yeah. So we all kind of she and the person showing were kind of laughing. So I was doing what I was doing, and then I had like like five seconds when I was switching muscle groups, and I said, "Hey, let me show you quick the um, the trick to the straps." I put my straps on and. Use your thumbs to bring the straps around. You can put them on there really easily. Uh-huh. So it took like all like eight seconds. And, I, and she's like, oh, wow, that looks really easy. I'm like, there you go. Uh, good luck with it. And I went back to what I was doing. But another guy in the gym saw me take that break. And this guy likes to talk. Super nice guy. Oh, yeah. But he's on my do not talk list. Yeah. He likes to talk. <laughs> and once you get me going, I'll start rambling as I, you know, people know me to do. Right. And um, so he's like, hey, Scott. And I'm like, yes. He's like, I want to introduce you to someone. I'm like. Just because I helped her out doesn't mean I'm open to a big, long conversation. Did you say that? So Yeah, I did. <laughs> that's exactly, and I didn't say it like, you're a dick, but I'm like, yeah. I knew like that's, he wouldn't have said that to me had I not stopped. He's like, that was my chance. Right. Because you could see when someone is like, you know, waiting to like get their chance. And I just have to avoid eye contact with some people I can, you know, fist bump and we can talk for five seconds. We don't. Yeah. And then other people like you just can't do that mm-hmm. because they want to tear you away. They, they don't understand that groove that sometimes yeah. you kind of have to be in for safety reasons. And I know so, the listeners, I'm going to interject here. The listeners might not yeah. know this about you, but you feel that you need to respond. There's times that I've texted you and I've just been like, you know, just sent a text and I'm like, Scott, we'll get to it when he gets to it. But then it, yeah, I know you've been like, I had a really busy day and I didn't get a chance to text until now. And then you give me this long explanation back. And it's like you felt like you needed to like right. if I came up I'm to you and I'm like, I'm much better at that. Good. But yeah. I, I've noticed that about you. I could imagine that if I walked up to you in the gym, I was like, hey, Scott, how's it going? I want to tell you about this. And you'd feel like, OK, now I'm obligated. Like there'd be part of you. <laughs> well, this this guy, he's I, I'm not even sure to what extent, but somehow he's connected to academia. Oh, okay. and I, I knew like this is going to be he's going to want a formal introduction. Oh. And literally, I'm just I I have I am just fucking cranking. I was having a badass workout. I was doing great. You stop now. Mojo was totally working, and I'm like, no, I just can't do this. I said because because you like to talk and you will catch me. Next thing you know, we're just talking galore, and um. <laughs> so I told him that. And I just kind of like I, I was, to- but it was very nice, you know, and because I, I knew that I did not want to break that away. Yeah. And backstory about four years ago, I actually when I tore part of this biceps was during was in a similar situation where I was hosting a meetup group for a bodybuilding meetup group, and a guy wanted to follow and just kind of watch me train. Yeah. And I felt obligated to kind of teach him and show him what I was doing. I would too. And I end up, yep. And someone else came in, and next thing I knew, I was like, people were running late, and I, we were going to go eat. So I went, and I and actually was doing a side lateral machine when I tore my biceps. Yeah. And so I injured myself because I had stopped everything, and I wasn't properly warmed up, and I my workout got interrupted. So some of it's self-protective, but 
anyway, the the point of, of me bringing all that up was I've actually when that the one guy walked away, I went and introduced myself to the guy who was referring to <laughs> and said hello. So I said we could say this before he comes back because then he's going to want to talk. But yeah. nice to meet you, I'm Scott. Yeah. Um, but like that was like that was part of the groove that you know I had that was just like this is what I'm here. This is fun. Like you wouldn't pull over Lance Armstrong if he's like cruising around, you know, and say, "Hey, Lance, can I get your autograph?" And it's, you're like, "I'm on a ride." No. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Until I get done. Um, not that I don't want to give you an autograph. I love to talk to people, but. Lance was in his, he'd set, like, if Lance is on his bike, you know, he's at lactate threshold, he's cruising, he's in the middle of a time trial. I was rocking. I was having a great workout. Yeah. And so I just let him, and it was totally fine. We laughed about it afterwards. Good. And I, but I was truthful with him. And I, I still would say that, like, I even told him, you're on my do not talk list because <laughs> you like to talk too much. <laughs> and I'm, it, it's nothing, it's nothing derogatory against the person at all. It's just the truth of the matter. Yeah. That kind of disarms it too, the way you handled that versus it being like, if you don't talk about it, then he might think you're just a dick or something. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, if he, it's just a thing, if he doesn't get it, then he doesn't get it. I can't like, yeah, you know, yeah. make him, make him get that. The, the other guy actually apologized for him because he knew why, like, I think he didn't want that, and because if he was, uh, I think he's a uh, he's a power lift. I'm pretty sure he was training for a, a competition. So yeah, um, it's it's yeah. I, there's no reason to be upset. I was I actually had fun interacting with him. Like not now, man. No friggin' way. I got my I like that. That's that. Is, I think I used the word bass adder ass battery or badassery. Yeah. Actually. I said we don't. You, we cannot disrupt disrupt the flow of bad ashes that I have going on right now. <laughs> and I went about my business. He's like, okay. <laughs> so anyway, um, are we getting listeners' questions? I saw you looking. I haven't looked at all. I've been just too busy rambling. Here. We did have a couple here. There was one from uh, Brandon. Let me see if I can pull this up. Um, okay, let's see. My mouse isn't clicking right. Yeah, yeah. This is in reference to another podcast. He says, hey, guys, I would love to hear Scott's opinion on the question Skip and S2H answered on the last episode of Blood, Sweat and Gear in regards to how we can make deloads more enjoyable. I know Skip mentioned trying uh, out new exercises slash machines that you haven't used before, but I feel like that would prevent a novel stimulus that could or that yeah that would prevent a novel stimulus that could potentially increase the amount of muscle damage you experience and lower the ability to recover within the deload week would love to hear how Scott would approach a deload and if he's remembered to keep exercises the same um, or just drop down your volume as most do during a deload Brandon, my man, you need to go read the Fortitude Training book. I'll tell you what Skip had said yeah. real quick here. Yeah, okay. So Skip had said he was like, listen, when I do a deload, I like to just go in and have fun with it. He was like, that might be an opportunity for you to – he was like, if you're in a groove, you're not going to try anything different. You're not going to go over and try that machine or try a new exercise. He was like, I've messed around with machines I wouldn't have messed with before when I was in a strict groove and I found that that's given me an opportunity where, like, hey, I like this chest press. I might give this a try in the future. That's that's what he was saying, basically. But he said, have fun with the deload. Don't don't yeah. overstress yourself with it. So, here's how I do, like, the, my my 
intensive cruises in fortitude training are an answer to Brandon's question. It's like, I, I think he's read the fortitude training because we're, he's, I'm going to be on his podcast for, here pretty soon. Nice. Um, so one, uh, in order to avoid like the increasing muscle damage, or what have you, I have people drop down a volume tier. So, and space out their training a little bit. So they train a little less frequently and they drop with a little less volume. Yeah. But in line with what we see in, and uh, you know, I looked at the evidence that was available at the time I wrote it. There may be more off to, off to look on this, this one as well, but the evidence at the time was pointing, and this is how it's typically done in many, many sports, is you do a taper if you want to have improved performance on the day of a meet. So you keep your effort levels and the quality of your efforts high, but you reduce the volume. So swimmers would still do, you know, maybe a couple time trials with their event, but they would they cut their their yardage in half, you know. And sprinters wouldn't do nearly as many, you know, all out sprints, or maybe just do shorter sprints. But they still would do sprinting, so they're maintaining um, the effort level. And then if you do a taper the right way, you come back strong. As you, you, your performance is peaked. Yeah. Um, so that's how I reduce that. They also, th as far as the fun goes. Uh, the intensive cruises are just muscle rounds, which people find to be the most fun anyway, um, by far. And muscle rounds are de facto auto-regulated and auto-selected in terms of the exercise. So if you want to use the exercises you've been using, you can. But you can also pick whatever you want. The idea being that, like, you know, I haven't done a muscle round on that chest press or that, or that you know, leg press or what have you. I want to give that one a shot. Yeah, and and try out new exercise. So you know, I want to do like a Meadows Row, um, a muscle round because I saw John doing Meadows Rows and they look great, or so and so, blah blah blah. Yeah. So you you play with those things, and that being able to do that is just fun. It also allows you to fit a cruise in and have some standardization. Like when people travel, I have to do just muscle rounds. They don't have to necessarily make a cruise out of it, but that would give you a chance to go to different gyms because there's no, you don't have to go to like that one hammer strength machine right. that's made from the model year. Like it's different than the one at the other gym, you know, blah, blah, blah. You can do whatever you want. So, but the volume's less and the workouts are also spaced out. You're only training like three times in a week as opposed to typically four. So that's how I do it. Less volume, shoot, auto regulate the exercises you select, only go with the muscle rounds, which are fun. And people love the cruises. And if you do it right, at the end of the cruise, you actually take the deload, which is what I call an intensive cruise, because it's intense because you still do muscle rounds, which are which you're not reducing your effort level um, at all during those muscle rounds. You're just doing fewer of them. Hmm. Um, and the last uh, about third of the total time of your intensive cruise, your deload, you just do, you, know, you just take that time off. Okay. So by the time you're, that's a standard way to do it. Everyone can kind of figure out their own recipe, but. That's the way it works really well for lots of people as a starting point, at least. Yeah. And then when you come back, um, when you're after that completely free of training period, people are just chomping at the bit, and they just like their strength goes sky high. Yeah. And if they've eaten a, for for making muscle gains, typically they've also moved forward a good bit as far as fat-free mass goes. You can just kind of see it. They they basically it's a rebound period for many people. So so that that covers the whole thing like it gives you some structure but not too much structure if you choose your exercises stick with the muscle rounds um you could do whatever you want but this is just the way i have it and that way you've got those muscle rounds you try out those exercises and you can then when the next blast comes around you can do with muscle rounds in fortitude training you can either stick with the same ones mm -hmm. same exercises you can just keep doing those if you want until you 
be able to make gains and then switch. Or you can just do something different every time if you like and just keep a logbook pool of exercises and come back and say, okay, last time I did that was oh, about five weeks ago. Let's see if I can beat that performance. Yeah. So that depends on what the person chooses to do because there's plenty of progressive overload with the um, with the loading sets and the other aspects of the, the program. Yeah, so. I like the sounds of that. And I, I can see where Brandon's coming from too that – you know, if you really got into it with a, a new machine, you could end up being more sore than than when you started. You know, if you oh, just, yeah. if you just went in and, and just started tearing it up. But I can also see what Skip was saying, where he was saying, like, you know, you're not going too heavy in his case. He's is what he was thinking is like he's just having fun with it. And uh, yeah. if you do, if you reduce, if it's a deload, then you reduce something. Yeah, that's the thing, you know, like a deload is so generic. So um, if you do, if you like, if you try a new exercise and you like stop three, four reps shy of failure, as opposed to taking it to failure. Yeah. Even if it's a new exercise, that's probably going to be maybe about the same. It kind of depends. Like some people, and this is, this ties into this next topic. If we want to go to, these are good questions. We can just save that for the next one if you want, but depends on how sore people tend to get. Some people they do a new exercise and it's just like holy crap, like yeah. they never lifted before. Yeah. And then others are, you know, so it kind of depends, and depends on like there's so much, so many different aspects. If you drop your volume to one third of what it once was, so instead of doing twelve sets, you only do like you know four, and two of those are with a new exercise. I think you're going to recover compared to doing twelve sets. Yeah. Yeah, you know, because your, your volume is so much lower. So you would just say, if you know, if I'm going to do all new exercises for this deload, instead of dropping, you know, from 12 to nine sets, which is what I typically do, or 12 to eight sets, this time I'm going to just drop down to six sets. Okay. Because I'm trying out new exercises entirely for the purpose of this deload, and I want to make sure I don't cause that issue. So you would just, you know, if you're scared of the novelty creating uh, excessive muscle soreness. Then you just reduce the volume to account for that possibility, and then you avert it. Yeah, that makes sense. So that's you know that's how I would do it. But yeah, when I went back into the gym after training chest at home, you know, for months, I I started training back at the gym again sometimes. And I'll tell you what, man, I was fried. They because of course I wanted to use. I've been using all free weights at home, and there's a couple machines that uh -huh. I really enjoy. So I was like, yeah, I'll uh -huh. go to the gym, and it was going to be kind of like a lighter week. I'm going to use these machines. And, oh, my gosh. I got totally cooked. I was like, I love yeah. the way this feels. The next day, like, man, I haven't been this sore in months. So this is funny. You reminded me. So this there's this gym in south of Orlando that I'd gone to, uh, like, the day after the Masters Nationals called Kissimmee Muscle. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah, you've probably seen it because I didn't – the Olympia didn't kind of turn out the way I wanted to. I was wanting to get down there when I was at the Olympia this year. But a lot of people went down there. Um, like I saw tons of tags, and I actually went up going there about two weeks ago. Okay. For an early, the earlier purpose, and the owner actually posted something I think on Instagram of a picture of the two of us. But <laughs> they've got a line of equipment that's just awesome. I can't remember the name of it right now. It just has this great friggin' feel. Like the converging chest press Ooh. is badass. Like all of the machines are just great. And I used those, like it was the day after the show when I went in there training before. Uh -huh. so I just used machines, wanted to get a quick one in, just like a full workout, full body thing. Keep the water moving around, all that kind of junk. And um, But it was like, this feels really good. It felt awesome. I didn't even use a lot of the machines. And I remember asking him, 
his name's Jonathan. I asked him, I said, man, that line of, I can see why you found or kept that line of equipment. He's like, oh, I had to, I had to seek that out. He told me the story, but it was entirely not by accident that he had that line of equipment. No kidding. And he's, he's like, people love that shit. He said he had a women's physique competitor and this was, I think, what show was it? There was another, the, the show before that, but North Americans, I think was there in Orlando and he, this was a women's physique competitor and she was coming in like two days before a show the day before a show and she was supposed to be doing like a light he talked to her for a little while you know like a light workout and she got on there and and she's just like like some women are they just have ridiculous recovery abilities and just love to train mm-hmm. and like he said she was in there for like three hours oh and like he gosh. went up there, he's like he's like weren't you supposed to be just like sort of like lightly he's like She's like, I love this stuff. I can't help myself. I can't stop. It's like, how many sets have you done? She's like, I think like 42. Oh my gosh. <laughs> it's like, it like, stop, you know, stop. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so, um, I don't know where I was going with it, but yeah, just, just when you go back into the gym you just like, you get those new machines that feel so good. I, plus they're novel, but you tend to want to also overdo it too. And I, I did that when I was there. I'm like, I did a little more, but I'm like, just take a couple of the days rest, you know? Yeah. I'll, I'll live. We had a couple oh. more things here. Um, one of them is uh, uh, Mr. Scott Stevenson. Will you launch your own courses? Oh, I th- I thought about that. Um, I've got some other things in mind that I may try to put together. I would do with my "Be Your Own Bodybuilding Coach" book. Mm. I'm doing I'm doing you know hour long consultations with people. And some people have come to me, like, over the course of the years, people, like, they line up several of those. We kind of do, like, it's not an apprenticeship, but it's a mini um, sort of, uh, you know, guide them through with a half a dozen or a dozen regular consultations to get them going and help just educate, round off their education, what they what they know or don't know, and they want to try to learn from me. I thought about that. It's just, like... There's various ways I could do it. One one thing I've thought about doing and that I could still do is is offer CEUs through an existing organization. Hmm. I can't do that if I offer my own course. And I even had someone come to me asking me to put together a course, but it would have been under his in his organization. He would have had control over everything. So hmm. um, I've thought about it. What I want to for a lot of people having they just like the education, and that's cool. But it's also nice when those CEUs or the education is connected with the insurance mm. that most a lot of personal trainers need to have. Um, so offering that as CEUs through the NSDA or um, ISSN, I haven't even talked with them, but through the NS, I'm not even certified through them, but I am through the NSC and ACSM, um, is a way that allows people to both get the, keep their CEUs and thus their insurance up to speed and maintain those credentials. Mm. If I start my own, I'm not going to offer insurance. I, maybe I could somehow. I haven't looked into it, but I imagine that like that's a whole giant endeavor. Mm. Um, and doing it, I don't take that half-heartedly because, or if someone says, you know, I have a Fortitude training certification, I want to make sure that like I personally would send my mother to you yeah. to do Fortitude training. You know what I'm saying? Where um, you can offer all sorts of stuff, and people like. Not so much anymore, but I, I've seen like people who had like they had an alphabet suit behind their name because they got every certification possible. Yeah, and that kind of tells me that you don't feel like you know what you're doing because you just mm. had to keep on getting certifications to try to fill that void of 
you know, of imposter syndrome that you feel or incompetence that you don't feel like you can, you can get. So it would be a ginormous, gigantic undertaking to do that. I've thought about it. Um, and right now I'm sort of filling that, that void by, by working with people one-on-one -on -one and doing online consultations or phone Skype consultations sort of on a, um, ad hoc basis. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, you know, there was a, I took a CEU course, I think through the NSCA long time ago, 15 years ago, that was like a bodybuilding physiology course. So that's something I might do. And I've actually, um, thought about putting together a, a peak week, um, course, so to speak, to help guide people through the things that I do with peak week mm -hmm. and look, consider the options. Cause that's a big place where people drop the ball, yeah. or get overly complicated or have no idea what to do or get dangerous. There's like, there's one area of bodybuilding where I feel like the education is, could probably be the most needed. Hmm. It's probably, at least in competitive bodybuilding, it's probably with the peak week. I could see that. Yeah. A lot of people yeah. look at it as the, the secrets too. So they, it's not always shared, you know? Yeah. They don't share things. People use a lot of drugs. The diuretics can be really dangerous. They can fuck you up pretty badly. There's, there's just, there's a lot of science to be shared there too. It's kind of a lot of cool stuff. Yeah. So that's the thing that I might do course wise first, if I do anything and what I would probably do, um, I was planning on doing this through Facebook, but I don't know if I want to now since my Facebook got hacked. God, I'm glad I didn't do it when my Facebook account got hacked was was do what many people do is they set up a private group on Facebook hmm. and then they charge for entry. Have you, this is a, I've a, seen this. Yeah. Yeah. It works pretty well. Like you go in and you get you're part of an eight week cohort or whatever. And they do like, you know, weekly live Q&A sessions. You guide people through their train, your training program or what have you. Mm -hmm. So I do like a, you know, like a six week thing to help people guide themselves and clients through a peak week protocol and then they could have access to that for a year or whatever yeah. so they could you know through the course of a competitive season go back and look at the videos and and uh, repeat the process that i led them through yeah you know during the course of the actual course itself but i don't know like facebook wouldn't be where i'd want to host it now because i know now my account is not at all secure um so uh, well, if you do, yeah, people can keep up with you too through Instagram. They can go over to oh, yeah. fortitudetraining.net, byobbcoach.com. And uh, if they wanted to do consultations, that'd be a good place to, to hook up with you too over at those sites. You know, I'll, I'll say something that's interesting. Um, it's funny, like, he, so even, even like, I didn't even see who asked this question. Who was the, wasn't Brandon? I'm looking. Did you put this question up on the screen? Motaz. Oh, Motaz. Oh, yeah, we, he and I have spoken about the peak week thing. I know him. Yeah. <laughs> so it's funny. Um, very often people come to me asking for courses or those sorts of things. And um, I have the sense from various in various ways that they haven't really looked at what is available to learn from me totally free. Like if you go on Elite FTS, there's I have... 12 or 15 articles there that cover a lot of stuff um, that's totally free. I joined I the had, Mountain Dog website because you had some articles over there that I wanted to read. Articles over there. I mean, I did a Q&A when John was sick and in the hospital that was like two and a half hours long. You know, there's tons of stuff over there. He's got some videos over there from seminars that we did together that I, I presume they're still there that I think are available to members. Um, and 
may, I've had people come to me who want sort of a mentoring type of thing. Hey, could you mentor me as a coach? And and I'll and I ask, well, have you gotten my book? Mm-hmm. And they're like, no, they haven't even read the Be Your Own Bodybuilding Coach book. Yeah. So, so that 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 doesn't that's not to like direct that specifically any anyone in, in particular, but I see that almost more commonly than not. Actually, three quarters, maybe the vast majority of the time, is people who are coming to me. So that tells me that to some degree, it's not that they have exhausted the limitations of what information they can find just by searching. And like, you go to my website, and it's like, you know, buy all his buy all his books. Mm-hmm. Like, you know who Paul Check is? I know the name. Yeah, he's he's an interesting guy. He was at Swiss um, last time it was there. Okay, I don't. Um, Ken knows him pretty well. He's been to Swiss multiple times. He's a phenomenal guy. He started off sort of an exercise specialist. He's got some various, he's got a number of different books and videos on functional exercise and things of that nature. And But now he's a very well-read guy, and he's very sort of um, a spiritual, kind of the, sort of the zone of spiritual life coach type of Okay, yeah, area. I know who you're talking about. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, he's a fascinating guy. I really, really like him. I kind of feel a bit of a kinship to him, and he has a like a one and a half year long course or something like that, you know, that you can take and you can pay for. Mm-hmm. And but I, instead, and I'm not I'm not aggressively going after this, but I've I've got a few of his books. I'm, I listen to his podcast on a regular basis, and I try to learn as much as I can for him for free. So then, this is what I always tell people: is then when I if and when I would ever go and do his course, which I don't think I really would need to, but if I would ever would want to, let's say I went to Paul and I said, hey, Paul, I'd like to apprentice with you. I'd like to become an apprentice in some way. I don't think he offers that. Let's just hypothetically say this is the case. Right. I would have been completely up to, up to date on you know, everything I could possibly find so that when I do interact with him, I can say, well, you know, here you wrote this, and then 10 years later you wrote this. And so how do you feel about these two things now? Because these ideas are juxtaposed. They're somewhat, mm-hmm. they're somewhat you know, contradicting of one another. And so he could give me that answer. Whereas if I have no idea what he's done because I haven't even read his books or looked all the, pre- then that tells me that I haven't even put out the effort that you want to see in an apprentice or you want to see in a student who takes your classes. Um, and maybe that, and this is so common now, I see this so much, and this is like a, me on a soapbox of academia, but people want to go and get the degrees just to say they have a degree. Mm. Because that's what the industry rewards. Is like, do you have a master's degree? We'll pay you more than you if you have an undergraduate degree. Or like, I know I know people who have gone to various places where they offer these sort of mail-in PhD degrees mm-hmm. that are really worthless. They don't give you any opportunity for licensure. There's some naturopathy um, accreditations out there that that make you think you're naturopath, but you can't get licensed as a naturopathic physician because they're not accredited by the accrediting commissions that do that. And people are just gathering degrees because they feel like if they have the, the letters that just having made it from A to Z in terms of getting that credential means they will have the knowledge and understanding that will wash away whatever insecurities they might have or, or feelings of, of inadequacy in terms of being a coach or being an expert in their area, whatever sure. it might be. Sure. And that's not at all what you know I think degrees should be about. Um, not in the least. So, yeah. so someone comes to me and they say, you know, Hey, like, are you, do you offer classes or I like to apprentice with you? And I say, well, um, have you read my books? Like, no, I, I haven't. It's like, where do I get those? And I'm like, well, you haven't even like looked in my website. Like, you know, very little about me, except that you have the sense that I maybe have some expertise, which you'd like to have. 
Yeah. But you're you're going at it for the you want that's to the end point. Like you're going at it not to get through the journey, but just to get to the end point of having the credential or the certification. And that's the most that that's not that's not exact that's not at all what I would want in someone. So um there's lots of stuff out there. Someone, if someone gets my Be Your Own Bodybuilding Coach book, and I've had people tell me, like, I, I downloaded it and I read it in like eight hours. I'm like, wow, that's, that's amazing. <laughs> wow. And you, did you read War and Peace just for like dessert, like afterwards? Like, how did you do that? You know. So, um, that's kind of what concerns me a little bit. Is I want to, if I'm going to create a credentialing course, it's going to have to be really big and extensive and worthwhile. Um, like, um. Oh, what's what's Martin's last name? Um, uh, um, mm, I don't know. McDonald. Oh, okay. In, he's in the UK. Yeah, he has a he has a Mac U. Yeah. Um, he's put together a phenomenal. He's done it right. What they've done is created a specialized accredit, and it fits in with the UK um, educational system that allows you to become properly certified to be. A personal trainer or nutritional specialist or whatever terms they use over there and mac U is like a one-year dig in get after it you know i'm where you if you'd say it's graduate level it's probably more of a graduate level because he deals with the actual research rather than what the textbooks say type of type of study and that's a full-time endeavor for him hmm. you know and and he's done a phenomenal job with it but if people who don't know about that it wouldn't help you so much even in the states you probably could get, you should get CEUs if you were to do that. But his is like, it's a year long program. Yeah. Art McDonald. So he, and he's a phenomenal guy. Um, yeah. So that's the way to do it. So it's kind of like all or nothing. Cause I don't want to like appease, like I got the fortitude training certification after four hours, you know, and now I am, and I'm like, and you forgot it all. You've got everything I said, like yeah. three hours, Yeah. you know, but it's on your Instagram as a, you know, whatever. I'm like, that doesn't, that doesn't serve my purpose of helping people be able to better help others. Hmm. It actually can be the opposite of that, of that I'm helping people find little ways to, to sort of brush the dust of their insecurities under the rug <laughs> by gathering together certifications. I still can't get anyone to like, I've had like one person so far who can, who can adequately reproduce what a muscle round is really on Instagram. Yeah. I've had one person and I think he was, if I recall right, he was from Germany, so he was doing it in a, in a, not even in his mother tongue, huh. but he got it right. So I'm surprised. Else misses it. They missed the subtle the subtleties of you know the whole the whole point of how you set them up. But well, if, let's throw that out there here. I mean, we're at the the end of the show here. If, if people right. are an hour and a half in, they're dedicated. Let's start there. That's true. Uh, if if well, they're asleep and they're just their phones just playing. You yeah. Know, <laughs> Wait. Tune in, guys. Tune in. We, we need you for a Hi second God. here. Um, let I'm going to put it out there. I want to see it personally. If you can do an actual muscle round, tag me, tag Scott. Uh, I want to see it now. Well, it's I, you know I haven't even watched those so much. What I see are the descriptions of how to do them. Oh, are, I thought it was like, like an actual video. Some well, there's there's some that aren't you know on you know. Um, that's a whole other topic, but, but there's, yeah, like no one, like, just here's how you do a muscle it. round. It's like, you know, and they just, they, and it's right there on my, on my, Ford, it's on my Instagram. Like all you have to do is copy and paste, you know, or link, like, you know, it's hard to get to links on Instagram, but copy and paste my description. It's right there. Yeah. Hey, George White's with us still. 
George White's with us till the end. He George says. is the man. Yeah. Yes. See, George is a veteran. George, George is the when you go to war and you got someone in the trenches, you say, "I want to who's going to cover me?" And everyone else is like, "George is the dude you call on." Yeah. 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 He's got some mental fortitude. Yes, he does. Yes, he does. And physical. Yes. All right. Let's, a good dude. Let's so. let's call it a day here, Scott. And good, um, and we'll have a your topic that other topic. Then we can basically call that almost like a part two. It sounds like segue right into that for that next it's episode. The other side of the coin that we just that we just looked at. Okay. Awesome. Well, I will look forward yeah. to that. And as always, it uh, it's been a pleasure. I always I always enjoy listening and and expanding, um, kind of like my working knowledge in this of the stuff I'm exploring in the gym. And I like to chat. <laughs> oh, it's a perfect match. <laughs> All right, guys, for another episode of Muscle Minds with Scott Stevenson, I'm Scott McNally. Head on over to fortitudetraining.net, byobbcoach.com. Of course, check out our awesome sponsor, truenutrition.com. Use our code advices. We'll catch you next time, guys. See ya. Thanks, guys. Adios.